The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Let's get started. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump into our evening together. Um, yeah, let me pray. King Jesus, we are, uh, we're really thankful for today. We're thankful for tonight. We're thankful for... Uh, the rain that we can, um, yeah, that we can rejoice in your goodness to us, in both the sunshine and in the rain. Um, that regardless of situation, Jesus, you are good to us. And so um, we ask tonight that you would help us to um, understand your gospel even more than we already do. That you would help us to grow in in our understanding as well as in how we embody the truth of who you are and what you've done in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, a couple of quick uh, just kind of logistics before we actually jump in. So this is the last night for how we change. First of all, last night, we can be thankful that things begin and they end, right? We can all be thankful together. Um, so tonight is the last night. In two weeks, just so that you guys know a couple of things going on, in two weeks, uh, we have our foundations class starting. Um, for those of you who aren't members, which is probably... Some of you, uh, we would encourage you guys to attend that class. It's called Foundations. It's a four-week class. And essentially, it walks through kind of our theology, our church leadership and structure and polity, and then just some of of, uh, kind of philosophy of ministry, how we set certain things up, whether it's Sunday mornings or gospel communities or whatever the case may be. Um, Foundations is essentially um, one of the requirements for membership here at Park Church. If you guys are interested in membership and have questions about that, um, I would love to talk to you about that. Come find me during a break or after the class. That'd be great. Um, If you can't be at Foundations um, but want to become a member, also just come holler at me and we can talk about uh, when the next class is and all those things. So uh, the second thing is at the exact same time as Foundations which again is in two weeks from tonight, two weeks from tonight, um, excuse me, three weeks from tonight. I take that back, three weeks from tonight, right? The 26th, what is that? Yeah, three weeks, I'm sorry, I said two weeks, I meant three. Um, Three weeks from tonight, October 26th, foundation starts, and then at the exact same time, we also have a class starting called The Beauty of God, and so if you are already um, a covenant member at Park Church, Um, but want to walk through essentially kind of a systematic theology. Now, before you say, oh, I don't want to go to that class because he said systematic theology, you being good, reformed, Bible-believing, evangelical people, um, systematic theology is not a, uh, like, really long curse word. It's a beautiful thing to talk about, kind of how God is beautiful and how he has created this world to be beautiful and how in the gospel he has demonstrated his beautiful love um, and redeeming sinners like you and me. And so um, the beauty of God, again, is a four-week class. It, start, it starts October 26th, Monday nights. It's when we do all of our, our classes. We'd encourage you to go to that class as well. Sign-ups are on CCB, just like foundations, just like this class. Um, but that class is much more for those who just want to get equipped to understand the Bible even, even more about um, who God is and what he does. Um, a couple of other things. Um, yeah, you guys know where the bathrooms are at this point. Again, Feel free to get up and grab something to drink or something to eat in our time. Uh, We will have a break in the middle of our time, but we'll also have a lot of time for discussion tonight. We find that the last night 
of these classes, it's helpful just to continue to like press into how these ideas, these thoughts can shape and form us as people, but especially as we process them out loud, as we kind of apply the implications of the gospel to everyday life with one another. And so whether you're with a gospel community or not, we would encourage you just jump in fast. I know vulnerability is something we struggle with because um, we fear getting, getting rejected or something like that. Um, and that's a real fear, but these people here are safe, and um, we're not on Twitter telling people about your deepest, darkest secrets. So you can be honest about that. Just kidding. Don't tell your deepest, darkest secrets. Don't do that. Um, and I might encourage some of you guys, if you're sitting at a table relatively alone, or just a few of you, maybe like let's consolidate some of those tables, unless you've gone through this whole class together, which I'm okay with. Anyways, um, so let's start our night t together. Actually, first, let's talk about where we're going to go. Tonight, we're going to talk about fruit. So we've walked through kind of this big picture that um, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane have set out, where it talks about um, the heat that we kind of um, find ourselves in. And so whether it's, it's like a hard situation, or actually even heat can technically be an easy situation. Both will lead to um, idolatrous, sinful responses in different um, kind of parts of life. And so the heat, uh, the question is kind of what is your situation? The second piece, and we'll, we'll do this again later, um, but the second piece is uh, thorns. So how do we respond to our situation um, in a thorny, brambly way? So essentially, how do we respond sinfully or idolatrously? The third that we talked about last week is kind of how does the gospel, how does who God is and what he has done help us understand not only this situation, but who we are in Christ Jesus. And then tonight, we're going to talk for a while about fruit. So what does it look like to bear fruit in this world? What does it look like to bear fruit in the context of community? Um, what does not bearing fruit look like? How do we understand those things biblically as gospel people? And then we are going to actually summarize, okay, what does this big picture look like? We're going to um, talk a lot together about that as well as a case study where you guys are going to work through some of that together um, and hopefully do some of that in your groups as well. So um, that's where we're headed. I want you to start tonight. There should be two questions um, I know I gave you a, a supplement because uh, we printed, and then I realized, oh, I only put two questions in your entire handout, and I'm sorry. So uh, we also printed a supplement. Let's start tonight by asking the first two bullets, just the first two bullets under session one, fruit. Start there. Go. Okay, let's come. Oh, let's come back together. While somebody turns it down. Thanks, buddy. Um, okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, so I know I cut you off. You guys are um, talking away, which is great. This is healthy and good. Um, now, obedience is a... Um, is it a cultural faux pas these days? That's a question uh, that I think we have to ask ourselves. And I think it's interesting even in the context of the church. Um, but first, just thinking generally about obedience. Why is it that talking about, thinking about um, obedience is hard for us? Why is it that, that um, even just the concept of obedience is something that you do have to tread lightly on when talking with other people, unless they're your children, of course, obviously. Um, in which case, you should just talk about it all the time. It's really healthy for their hearts. Um, well, I think one reason is because uh, whether we like it or not, we oftentimes associate with... Um, obedience, different types of authority structures, and so um, whether we like it or not, all of us are in submission and or surrender to some form of authority, right? Almost, I should say, 
almost all of us, and as Christians, we are to Christ. And yet, even in our work or in um, families, all of us, all of us at one point were and are children, right? And so there is a, there is a, a true authority structure built in the family that that many of us, um, whether we like it or not, don't want to acknowledge. On top of that, um, obedience is a hard thing to talk about and think about because um, associated with it are, are, um, is kind of the concept of power, so similar to authority, it's just the concept of power, and oftentimes, more often than not today, I think we associate power with, with the abuse of power. And so um, power we think of oftentimes is, is, is at least neutral, if not bad. And yet we have a speaker coming here in, in just over a month who wrote a book basically called, well, it's, it is called Playing God, but he's talking about why power is not a bad thing, why power is something that we should wield and use. And now he frames that well for us. But we oftentimes associate um, an abuse of power with power. So if you've ever heard kind of the um, truism axiom quote by a guy named Lord Acton, kind of... Um, absolute power um, corrupts absolutely, right? We oftentimes associate that idea with power in general. And so as people who struggle in terms of understanding submission or surrender, um, giving ourselves up to somebody else, um, we also struggle with the concept of power. And then on top of that, just demographically, I think um, we've talked about this many times, being in Denver and being uh, relatively young people, oftentimes we move here to Denver, whether we're young or old, because we like something about the free-spirited nature of the Wild West. And um, so obedience is something that we oftentimes associate with a lot of negative connotations. Now, that's generally speaking, within the context of the local church, within the context of Christianity, things get even stickier, right? Right? We don't like to think about the idea of obedience a ton within the context of the church because oftentimes um, there are certain things that come to mind very quickly, whether it's, you know, the gospel crushes legalism. And so there's a healthy understanding that, that the gospel does something um, that is antithetical to a form of, of works righteousness, of earning or meriting our salvation. Um, oftentimes talking in the... Uh, context of the church about obedience is really hard and sticky uh, because um, this idea of judgmentalism is something that we know we're not supposed to be a part of. That we've been told from a very young age, do not judge lest you be judged, right? Which is interesting because in and of itself, do not judge is what? It's a judgment. Telling somebody, do not judge me is, in and of itself, a judgment. And so how do we understand this concept of obedience well? How do we understand something that is, that is biblical and, in, and, and, and found throughout the Bible and beautiful? And how do we understand how that is associated with bearing fruit? Now, I want you to ask the next couple questions uh, in uh, kind of on the, um, the next two bullet points on the supplement here. The next two bullet points. And you can continue to talk about obedience generally, but in the context of the local church, ask those two questions around your table. Okay. Let's come back together. Now, we talked a minute ago about... Um, struggling with the concept of obedience, right? Um, 
Many of us struggle with the concept of obedience. 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 It's not a real word. I just created it. Use it tomorrow. Hey, will some of you guys right now pull out your phones and tweet obedience and just make up the definition for it? That'd be helpful. Slay, thank you. Um, many of us struggle with this concept of obedience. Now, on the flip side, many of us don't struggle with the concept of obedience. Many of us love the idea that there is an app on our phone that will tell us to read our Bible every single day at 8 a.m., right? There are many of us who grew up in a home where structure, relatively rigid structure, was, was prevalent. And every single thing we did was essentially, in our minds, checking off a box, whether it was getting that assignment done, getting those grades, going to school every single day and never missing a single day, even when we were sick, because we wanted to get that extra, you know, little notoriety at the end of the school year for not missing a single day of school. We put other children in harm's way. The physicians are laughing. All the doctors are laughing because they think it's ridiculous, and it's true. Some of you were that kid, weren't you? You were that kid. And we have all these boxes that we check off the list, whether it's going to church every single Sunday, whether we do every single youth group thing that is offered in the entire city for the entire year. Um, I did student ministry for three and a half years, and um, um, I, had this, uh, uh, I had this student who was just awesome, really encouraging, you know, always wanted to spend time, wanted to learn how to play guitar, wanted to do tons of fun things, like was like, hey, what can we do today? What can we do tomorrow? What can we do this week? What can we do next week? And it was like, man, this kid just encourages me. He makes me feel like my job is valuable just something that most youth pastors struggle with um, because like everybody thinks of youth ministry as like this, um, this stepchild of a ministry. It's really disappointing because it's a beautiful thing. And this kid was just so encouraging to my, my heart. And um, I was at this kind of local youth pastors meeting, getting together with a bunch of guys, just talking through you know, things we struggle with in youth ministry and new ideas and different books we're reading. And um, I was talking about this student of mine, saying how great he is and all these different things. And one of them goes, oh yeah, is his name... Peter? It wasn't Peter, but is his name Peter? And I'm like, yeah, his name's Peter. And they're like, he goes to Central, right? And I'm like, yeah, he goes to Central, right? And, and then another guy goes, oh, yeah, I know Peter. I met with him last week. <laughs> and this guy goes, yeah, I met with him last week as well. And then a, a fourth guy, a fourth dude at the table, one youth ministry table out of like five youth ministry tables, four out of the six dudes, spent time on a monthly, if not weekly, basis with this one kid. And I was like, man, I do not like that kid. <laughs> yeah, he's terrible. Um, but we were those kids. Some of us were those kids, like checking off more boxes. And so um, for some of us, we're like, um, we live this life of, of licentiousness. Um, we live a life of, of the man can't tell me what to do. I'm going to live a life of license. I'm going to do what I want. The law is not, you know, central to my heart. And yet on the flip side, many of us live a life of, of legalism, some form of legalism where everything we do is essentially checking off another box, where every single thing we do is essentially us thinking we're earning some kind of salvation. And so whether we believe in our hearts that we are the key to our salvation in what we don't do or what we do try to do, all of us fall into one of those two categories. All of us fall into one of those two traps. And what's fascinating is that 
Both of those two poles are essentially one and the same. Even if we're strong legalists, we fail to do what we say we're going to do. We believe that God is a God of law, that he creates laws for good reasons, and essentially because he is such, we should be such, and then we start holding people to the laws that we create in our minds, in our hearts. We hold people accountable to the things that we say they should do because we like them, they should like them. And yet, others of us, we essentially say, nobody can tell me what to do. The onus of authority and responsibility has shifted from outside myself to me and only me. And essentially, those two things are one and the same. Because if I'm telling everybody, I'm going to do what I want, I'm essentially creating my own law. It might just be one law, but I'm saying, this is what the good life looks like. Whereas if I'm a legalist, I say, no, there's all these laws, and you have to uphold all of them, but I don't even uphold all of them, so I'm a hypocrite in that. Now, all of us fall into one of these two categories, and it's important for us to understand where we fall in order to help us understand what obedience and bearing fruit looks like. So ask the last two questions, and when we come back together, I'm going to ask you some of, just some feedback from some of those questions. So ask the last two bullet points on your, uh, excuse me, last three bullet points on your supplement here. Go. Okay, so I have a couple questions. I want to ask you guys together, coming together. This is so encouraging. I'm serious. This is really encouraging to me because my voice doesn't matter as much as you guys talking in your groups. I mean that. See, they're laughing at how ridiculous my voice sounds. <laughs> I know, yeah. Okay. Um, no, in all seriousness, this is super encouraging. I love that you guys are talking about these things. It's really encouraging. Um, now, I know this is weird in a group this size, although um, it's not that big, so just get over yourself and throw out an answer. Um, let me ask you a couple of these questions. What does, um, going back a few questions, just what, is, what does Christian obedience look like? When, when, when somebody asks you, what does Christian obedience look like? Or maybe even just when somebody asks you, hey, how's your Bible reading going? What's the first thing that comes to mind? What's that? You didn't read your Bible at all. Thank you for being, look at that. Jumps in, just confessing sin right on the bat. <laughs> oh, thanks, Scott. What else? What's that? Sure, hypocrisy comes to mind. Why? So hypocrisy could be something that comes to mind. What else could come to mind? Yeah, Emily. So like if a pastor at your church asked you, How's your Bible reading going? It's great. Mm, yeah. But if a coworker who doesn't know Jesus asks you, hey, are you reading your Bible? What might you say to them, right? Yeah. So a form of people pleasing in how we respond to the question. It's great. Other responses? Who said that? I didn't see. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. It's good. Is that your name? 
No. No. Okay. <laughs> So not doing enoughism. That's good. Thanks for saying that. What's your name? Michael. Michael. Thank you. Micah. Micah. Excuse me. Thank you, Kevin. Other things that came to mind when somebody asks you, hey, how's your... Okay, so almost, almost, um, we see the question through a lens that is painted negatively, right? Instead of instead of assuming they're asking like a sincere question, sincerely wondering, hey, are you reading your Bible in a good sense? Just hey, how's your Bible reading? Maybe they know that you read your Bible somewhat regularly. Hey, how's it going? And they're just trying to love you well. That's great. That's really helpful. Thanks, Josh. Other things, yeah. So playing the comparison game, um, putting ourselves next to somebody else and trying to figure out where on the Olympic podium we stand. Yeah, thanks, Karina. Other things? They're probably not going to ask that question if they're not reading the Bible. Sure. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, th that's probably true. Yeah, that's good. Thanks, Kevin. Other things. What about um, <clears throat> uh, kind of down the next grouping? Uh, in terms of legalism or license, how many people, show of hands, it's okay, we're in this together, are legalists? My hand is, I should have two hands. <laughs> two hands. Strong legalist, right here. Um, how many of you guys are licensed? Okay. Okay, that's great. That's great. Not as many. I, th I thought there'd be a few more licenses. Jeff, in the back. That's great. Oh, you kind of went both hands. That's great, too. Um, why do you think that is? What do you think is at the heart of that? Fear. So a realistic fear of consequences, whatever they may be. Thanks, Daniel. Other reasons why you're a legalist or, yes, Luann. Yeah. Sure. How many of you grew up in a home that was a certain way and you reacted negatively against the way that you were brought up? Okay, keep hands up if you're, a, if you're a legalist. Oh, not as many of us. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Actually, that's, that does make sense. All the licensed people are like, I hate legalism. All the legalists are like, man, I just need order and structure. and I want you to follow my kingdom rules. That's great. Um, why do you think, why else do you think you fall into one of those two categories, legalism or license? What's that? Control. How so? Help me understand that a little more, Jenny. Jenny. 
preach it. Mm. Sister. Um, how many of you guys... I'm serial, that was good. Um, how does that affect relationships that you're in? How does where you fall on the two poles, how does that actually flesh itself out in relationships? Here's where we get really vulnerable. Tim. for saying that. I feel like we could have a call-in talk radio show. <laughs> Tim, legalist, bench 245. <laughs> sorry, more than that. That was low. I'm sorry. Other ways that that gets worked out in relationships. Yeah, Cheryl. That's a great insight. Thank you. Other ways. Yeah, Emily. So as one more from Blaine, and I think I can pick and choose my relationships where it's like if I think that you're in more of a position to be accountable or interpreting those decisions or rules on me, I might back away and not invest as much in that relationship to focus on accountability. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Constant one-upmanship. That's great. Other ways. How does that work itself out in your workplace and what you do for a living? Yeah. Put your head down and do what you're told. How many of you who are legalists, okay, are, are firstborns? Decent amount of us. How many legalists are second and furtherborns? Oh, still a decent amount. Nice. How many licensed are not firstborns? Not as many as I'd expect. Would you look at that? Hmm. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles. <clears throat> to John chapter 15. Okay, John chapter 15, and we'll pick up in verse 1. I am the true vine, 
and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He goes into uh, a little bit more about commandments. But um, look at what Jesus does here. This is in a, a pretty long, if you guys have a red-letter Bible, this is in a, a relatively long discourse by Jesus where he's, he's talking about a lot of different things. And yet here he associates this, this idea of, um, of being in him, abiding in him, of, of being united to him is, is the language that Paul essentially uses, being in union with him, or Paul will say often, in Christ, in Christ. Um, but, but John uses this language of abiding in Jesus, so having a relationship with Jesus through the gospel, through faith in what he did, turning away from sin. And, and what he does is he uses this, um, this organic metaphor to describe what bearing fruit looks like. And he does a number of things in this passage. He uses this organic metaphor to talk about there's, there's, there's a vine dresser and a vine, and he says his father is the vine dresser and he is the vine. So there's somebody who's, who's tending and cultivating the, the vine, and there's all these branches. And branches that aren't bearing fruit will be cut off. They'll be burned. And branches that are bearing fruit will be pruned. They'll be, they'll be tended to. They'll be, they'll be nipped in the bud so that they can actually produce more fruit. So the author of Hebrews will use this language of, of essentially saying um, not just discipline in a negative sense, but are, are actually being put in situations where growth is imperative is a way that God prunes us, that he, he helps us grow through both hardship, through situation, and through oftentimes very easy things. So the the question of the heat, the heat question of what is your situation is essentially how is God pruning you? What situations do you find yourself in where God is is creating a context for for either good fruit or for thorny, brambly stickers or thistles? What, What is it called like the actual sticker on a thistle? Does anybody know? No. Is it just called a thistle? Barb. Thank you. Yes. One of my favorite names. And so Jesus is, um, is using this language to talk about what does um, abiding in him and bearing um, fruit look like. And, and he relates it there in um, verse 7. He says, 
if you abide in me, essentially, if you are in me, if you are finding your, your purpose, your contentment, your joy in me through the gospel, my words abide in you. And so he talks about his, his commandments, his words. And then later on in the passage, he essentially equates abiding in him and bearing fruit with obedience. And so not only here, but over and over again in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, obedience isn't a bad thing. Legalism is a bad thing. Legalism is a, is, is a terrible thing. It's an idolatry. And yet, obedience is a beautiful thing when done from a heart of, of abiding in Jesus. When done from a place of actually understanding the gospel and therefore embodying the gospel. We oftentimes talk about in gospel communities um, in a number of different ways. Maybe we don't talk about it that much. I don't know, I'm only in one gospel community. But we try to talk about it in our gospel communities about how we are supposed to do two things as a group together. We're supposed to cultivate, so there's the organic language again, to cultivate an understanding of the gospel and an embodiment of the gospel. And so essentially we're supposed to know who God is and what he has done. We're supposed to understand and dwell deeply upon um, atonement and justification and adoption. A lot of those things we went over in the first week. But on top of that, knowing is good and important and necessary, but knowing without actually embodying that gospel through its implications in everyday life circumstance is dead. James will say, faith without works is dead. And so essentially, if we say we believe something and our life doesn't match up, then what does that faith really stand for? What does it really mean? Does it have any lasting power? And so for us as gospel people, as we try to think together about what does obedience look like, the Bible has a lot of answers to that. Oftentimes we do equate it to reading our Bible more, or praying more, or church attendance, or evangelism, or social justice, or you fill in the blank. But the Bible has a much broader understanding of what that looks like. Now, what's also important in this concept of obedience is, is even here in this passage and in a lot of other passages, and we'll study one a little later on, um, the order matters. And so understanding that we abide in Jesus, and because we abide in Jesus, therefore we follow his commandments. Essentially, the cross comes before the fruit. You don't seek the fruit in order to get the cross. That is the definition of legalism. But for us, it's, it's because we understand who Jesus is, we therefore can obey him. Because of his Holy Spirit, we have the power to obey him. And because of the gospel, we have the power to change away from sin and turn towards him in faith. And so toward that end, just keeping the order in view. Now, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about one more passage, and then we're going to get into just how these things all fit together. We're going to put it all together. Um, so let's do this. Let's take a break, take a 10-minute break, stand up, move your legs. This is about the time when we all start to get tired, and then we'll meet back here in 10 minutes. Go. Okay, let's get together. Let's sit down. Let's get through the rest. Okay, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Philippians. 
chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 in just a second. So, um, this question about obedience and bearing fruit and what does that look like is an important question for us as Christians, as gospel people, to ask. As people committed to change, it's helpful for us to ask that question. What does it mean to obey? What does it look like? And oftentimes, we fall into some sort of um, kind of Christian-y, Christian subculture trap that reading your Bible and praying and going to church are the three things... Um, that obedience requires. And don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. Um, reading your Bible and praying are our primary means of grace in our life. So don't get me wrong. Those are unbelievably important. And yet, oftentimes, um, what we see in the Bible in terms of obedience is, is, is this beautiful picture of a life lived in light of the gospel. And so even as we look at passages like Galatians chapter 5, when uh, Paul talks about kind of for freedom you have been set free, and then he goes into this, this fruit of the Spirit. What, what, what does the, uh, a Spirit-born person look like? What does the fruit of their life look like? Um, and other passages associated with that. And so for us to think about this is important because, because our God, the God that we serve, the God that we follow, the God that, that has committed to changing us and helping us grow is a holy God. Even in Leviticus chapter 11, which I know Leviticus is law book, right? Which is inherently bad. And yet it's interesting how we associate something bad with something that is essentially an expression of who God is. The law is an expression of who God is and what he loves and what he wants to see for the good life. And so in in Leviticus chapter 11, um, God essentially says through Moses, um, I am holy, therefore be holy, right? Leviticus 11? Pretty sure. Um, and so we, as, as gospel people, are called to a life of holiness, a life of obedience. Um, Kevin DeYoung has a great book. There's a quote at the bottom of that page for you called The Hole in Our Holiness. And he just, he really helpfully unpacks the reality that many of us think of holiness, obedience as this bad thing, when the marks of a true church, of a beautiful church, oftentimes is like this unique thing where they live a different way, and not a holier-than-thou way, but a, a different way, a beautiful way, where they, they are committed to something. And so for us to ask some of those questions is important. Now, I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2. Um, Paul starts at the beginning of chapter 2. We're going to read from uh, verses 12 and 13, but Paul starts by saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So back to the, whoop, back to the John 15 passage. Did you notice how Jesus says, I want you to have my joy, and I want your joy to be full. And here, even in this passage, he talks about how obedience is something that should, shouldn't be obligatory drudgery. But a life lived in light of the gospel, it should be something that we're joyfully pursuing and longing for. Um, I don't know if Brian coined this or if he stole it from C.S. Lewis, which is common, but Brian has often said that obedience is, is simply rightly ordered joy. 
I feel like C.S. Lewis said that, right? <laughs> right? He's smart, but that, that feels Lewisian. And so for us to ask that question is important. Now, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And here's where a lot of joy language um, kind of um, makes us wiggle in our seats. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we oftentimes get stuck in obedience, in, in pursuing um, kind of the commandments of Jesus, the commandments of the Bible, essentially like, what does it look like to live this Christian life? Because we understand that legalism is a bad thing. We implicitly understand that. We also understand that like telling other people this is what the Christian life should look like, judgmentalism is a bad thing. And so because of that, we struggle to understand what does it look like. And, and oftentimes, many of us fall into this uh, one of two traps. Essentially, like, one trap is kind of, um, I am going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to do this obedience thing, which essentially means um, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't date any girl who does, who, who do. Can't remember how that goes. doesn't matter. I actually did know a gal who chews. Uh, in college, I went to the University of Nebraska, and one of the girls who lived on the floor below me, uh, like, always had a real fat lipper in. Awesome. Um, and yet, this passage gives us a picture that it's not just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, that it's not just us working towards something but because God is in us, because God has united us to himself through the Holy Spirit in Jesus, we can strive for, we can work toward, we can attempt to live lives of holiness. And so there's this, this kind of two-sided coin where we oftentimes fall on one side of the coin, whether it's we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps or on the other side of the coin is essentially like um, let go and let God. Essentially like God will do what he wants. I'm just going to let him do it. But no, Paul says in Philippians, no, you've been united to Christ and because of the Holy Spirit in you, willing and working in you, you can push forward for obedience in Christ. And there's this beautiful picture, and Paul oftentimes uses um, kind of this idea. He uses it in Philippians, um, as a, be, right before this passage, he talks all about who Jesus is, and then he gets into what does it look like to live this life. He does it real strongly in Colossians and in Ephesians and other books of the Bible all over the place where Paul is ranked. But essentially, Paul has this model of change and growth where he, he says, you are a Christian. Now act like it. And we hear that and we assume like that feels wrong to us in one sense, right? We hear act like it and we think, oh, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But that is the model that Paul oftentimes uses. So in Colossians chapter 1 and 2, he basically says like, here's who Jesus is. Here's how great he is. He says he's, he's, he's preeminent in all things. He's, he's the Son of God, fully, fully God. And then he says, and you are united to him. And then he makes this turn right at the end of chapter 2, and he says, if you've been um, um, uh, crucified in Christ or, or dead in Christ, but have been resurrected with him, then 
Seek the heavenly things. So he, he says, here's who you are. You are a Christian. Now, act like it. I don't know why I'm writing so illegibly. I'm usually, like, look at how good this is, and then look at that. And so Colossians 2 gives us this picture. Colossians 1 and 2, I should say. And then he says, now start acting like it. Colossians 3 and 4. He says, he says, put on the things of Christ. Put to death the things that are at war in your heart. And we struggle with that because we think that somebody telling us what not to do or what to do is bad. But not when it's Jesus. And not when it's his church who's coming alongside us and saying, hey, we love you. We see this in you. We're committed to your growth and your health. How many of you guys were here yesterday? Most of us. The process our elders are walking through right now is one of saying, we love this man and this family. We're going to walk alongside him. We're committed to his growth and his health and his good. And that's the picture that Paul paints for us. That's why community, as we talked about in, in, in um, night one, is so important. Because without people in our lives, we can't see our own sin. Remember we talked about kind of spiritual um, blindness and spiritual apathy and spiritual laziness. We can't understand our sin and we don't have anybody to walk through our sin with us. And yet the gospel gives us this beautiful call to obedience as, as people, but also to, to lovingly and helpfully corral the hearts of those around us and say, hey, hey I see something in you, and um, you did something to me. Matthew 18 will say, like, if a brother sins against you, you should go to him, tell him what he did. If he doesn't repent, then you should do this. You should bring another person along who has seen that pattern of sin. And so oftentimes there's this, this beautiful... <laughs> I've said beautiful a lot, but it is beautiful. There's this, this beautiful idea of, of confrontation in the gospel that we should long for and we should ask for. But instead we run away from. We keep people at a distance. Instead of saying, no, will you, will you tell me what you see and will you walk with me through it? Last week, it was, a, it was, just, it was a great week. Monday morning, first meeting of the week, 6 a.m., a friend asked me the night before, hey, can you grab a cup of coffee and a bagel? And I was like, yes, I love Paneras, multiple of them. For some reason, when people talk about Panera, they always refer to it in the collective or the plural. You want to meet at Paneras? And I'm like, no, I can't physically do that. Um, I will meet you at a Panera, and I will have a coffee and a bagel there. And a friend said, hey, do you want to meet? I was like, huh, that's weird. It seems a little out of the norm. Um, I don't know why I was skeptical. I was looking through a lens. And turns out he was like, hey, I see something in you with how you've been um, with your kids lately. He's at our house really often. He sees how we interact with our kids. And he had been there that weekend, and it was a hard weekend. It was really hard. And he just pulled me aside. Monday morning, first meeting, 6 a.m. Hey, just tell me about that. What's that look like? And he lovingly said, hey, I'm going to walk with you through this, but I'm going to point out something I see. It's not because I'm judgmental. It's not because I don't love you. It's actually because I do love you. And I want to see you bear fruit. 
want you to express the good news of the gospel in your everyday life. And then what was great, what was really healthy for my heart, is Wednesday afternoon, another brother, uh, a guy in our gospel community, both these guys are in my gospel community, called me, and he said, hey man, the way you kind of like texted this thing was just kind of unhelpful. Um, don't do that again. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like my inner lawyer comes out, and I'm like, man, you can't tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> And then, thankfully, um, he, he pressed in even harder, and I said, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't communicate like that. That's really unhelpful. Text messages are generally, text messages and emails are like communication negative or, or neutral at best, right? And so when you say something sarcastic in a text message, it sounds really mean. <laughs> like, seriously, really mean. Which is terrible, because I'm a really sarcastic person. Um, but that's what the gospel does in us as we ask people into our life. Now, there is a reality of, of um, kind of willful disobedience that we should be calling one another out of. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 5, we're not going to read it because we're running out of time, uh, just kind of talks about how, how I'd encourage you to read it later. Basically, it crushes this idea of judgmentalism and helps us understand that um, no, we're, we're called to lovingly and carefully identify patterns of sin in people's lives and then walk with them through it. So we're not going to go there. Now, let's pull it all together. Let's talk about what does this look like. Um, we're moving on to session two in the last 15 minutes that we have, and we're just going to do a couple of things together in our groups. Um, I'm going to share kind of a case study with you guys, and I want you guys to walk through kind of the four pieces of the big idea, or the big picture, excuse me, the big idea, the big picture. So the big picture, as we talked about earlier, is heat, kind of what situation are you in? And you guys have um, sheets on your uh, table that have a number of questions to ask around that, so heat questions. Um, the second piece is thorns, so how do we respond sinfully to the situation? Um, the third is... Uh, cross, who is Jesus and what has he done? The fourth is fruit. How do we bear fruit? So we're, we're essentially reviewing, summarizing, concluding, bringing all the pieces together. Now, um, I want to tell you a story, and what I want you to do at your tables is to diagnose heat, thorns, uh, cross, and fruit. Okay? Now, this is a personal story. You're probably sick of my personal stories. Um, but it was the most helpful one I could think of because it, it, it brought a lot out in my life and in my wife's life. So um, when we were, uh, I was at a church uh, two years ago that uh, I was part of a two-year residency program. And essentially, at the end of those two years, you go and you find another job, okay? And um, uh, maybe I should say, at the end of your first year, you start looking for a job. And they pay you to, like, look for a job. It's a great residency program. Um, pastoral ministry, how do you grow as a leader, all those types of things, wonderful. And it was like getting close to the 11th hour. My residency was winding down. I had been looking for what church is God calling me to next. Um, had been in conversations with this one church for a really, really long time. Things were getting closer towards some kind of decision, you know, like a DTR of sorts. But more, you know, like pastor to church, and so we weren't going to smooch at the end of it. Um, and, and, but that being said, um, my wife is not working outside of our home, so I'm the primary and only breadwinner. Uh, we have two children. Um, you know, they're relatively healthy, but all kids cost a lot of money in terms of, like, health care. They don't cost lots of money outside of health care, but, like, health care, you know, that's usually where you're going to spend your money. Most people say, like, having kids is, like, really expensive. They're liars. 
or they're buying really weird, superfluous things. Um, I'm not going to tell you what those things are. Come ask me afterwards. Um, but anyways, so I was the only one who was bringing in an income. My wife was working in our home, um, shepherding our children's hearts. It was wonderful. Um, but so like my paycheck was dwindling very soon. And we were kind of in the 11th hour. We were getting towards essentially my job ended May 31st. We're getting pretty close to that. We had been in these conversations with this church for a long time and had invested a lot of time. We had gone and visited a couple times. And um, the church, just to tell you a little bit about that, was um, was there was a lot of great opportunity and a lot of challenges. Um, financially, they were in a really rough place. Um, their, their building and facilities were just pretty dated and needed a lot of updating. Um, the people there were sweet. They were wonderful. They longed for um, a certain kind of pastor, um, and yet they really they were struggling to understand how do we relate to our neighborhood and love our neighbors and all these different types of things. Um, and at the end of the day, after going and visiting and spending some time with them, they made us an offer to come and be their pastor. Okay, so this is a lot of confession, so please don't laugh. It's okay if you do laugh. It doesn't hurt my heart. But, like, I'm being actually honest here. It was really hard because we got this offer letter from them, and um, it was, like, below subsistence level for us. Moving to Chicago from Kansas City, and it was an unbelievably low-ball offer. And we would have to pay for our own health care, and our children would have to go on essentially state-covered health care. And we would, they had a parsonage that they would still charge us rent for, and it was more than what we were paying in Kansas. And all of these things just kept looking like, whoa. I'm not going to tell you what, we obviously didn't go there. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you what kind of thorns and cross and fruit look like for us. So I want you to walk through the four categories and identify what kinds of things in terms of heat, thorns, cross, fruit would happen in a situation like that. What could that look like? And then we're going to bring it back together here in about six minutes. Go. Let's come back together. Um, and again, feel free to shout it out. Feel free to shout it out. So in the case study, in the situation I described, um, I know heat is obviously what I described the most, basically. It was almost all heat. But what are some of the things situationally that we could have been feeling in that situation? What are some of the things that we might have been feeling? Let's, let's do this. Let's clump them together. Heat and thorns. How could we be feeling, and then how could we respond? Say it again. Sure. A lot of things up in the air. Kevin. It's great. No end situation feels like betrayal. What else? Yeah. Yep. God, what are you doing in this situation? Feels like I put in the work, done the hard thing. That's great. Thanks, Mike. What else? Yeah. 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 Essentially, they're putting a price tag on who I am, right? Can feel like that, right? Yeah. What else? 
Say it again. I'm sorry, Sam. Yeah, okay, so the flip side, the same thing. Just, aren't I worth more than this? Not just being crushed, but I deserve, I'm entitled. Yeah, thanks, Sam. What else? Yeah. Yeah, so. Yep. Carpe diem, move on. I can make this happen. It's great. Thanks, Jess. What else? Sure. Okay. So, a lot of upside here. Senior pastor role, staff role, leading an elder team. That usually at a small church eventually leads to a large church, bigger pulpit, all those things. Yeah. That's good. What else? Say it again. Yeah. Bitter and resentful. A really good friend in the same position who uh, got burned a couple times similarly. And just has really struggled to connect with the church now. Yeah, Nate. I think the temptation is to seek comfort outside of God in those situations. Yeah. Like in what, for example? Alcohol. Yeah. Sex. Yeah. It's good. Now, what's interesting, and I don't know how many of you guys have ever been in a hard situation. The answer's all of you. Um, what's interesting, at least to me, is that you guys described everything that I felt. How many of you guys have gotten into a really hard situation and you have nine million feelings about what's going on? And somebody says, hey, what about this? And you're like, oh, yeah, I felt that too. <laughs> Thank you. So what is... What does the gospel have to do with then what bearing fruit in that situation really look like? So who is Jesus, but then also how does he call us to a fruitful response, a good response, a healthy Christian response? What does that look like? Go. Yes. No, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I said go. That's usually my, yeah, sorry. That's great, yeah. So asking a lot of questions, assuming the best in them to some degree, and saying, hey, do you understand, you know, this is 2015. Uh, I just, realistically. Um, sorry, you, now you saw my heart come out. So. <laughs> There's my thorns. <laughs> uh, other things, other ways that we could have responded. Yeah, Emily. What else? 
Yeah. great. You guys are awesome. Seriously. Wish I could say I did all those things. Um, and we didn't. I mean, it was really hard. We did, like, thank them. <laughs> and we sat down with them and we did kind of ask a lot of questions, but, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, just said, like, this, like, we just can't make this work. We love you, but, like, we just can't make that work. It's really hard. We know it's hard for you. They spent a lot of resources to make that happen, and uh, just couldn't make it work. And it was a really hard situation. And I think we still just questioned, like, hey, did we do the right thing? Not in going there, but just in how we responded, how we reacted, those types of things. Now, um, the reason I bring that up is not just so that you guys know this weird story about me and my wife. Uh, it's more because I think what we see in the gospel, what we see in the New Testament, is as we apply this idea, this model, this concept of heat, thorns, cross, fruit, um, to situations over and over and over again, it becomes... Uh, essentially a liturgy in our lives where, where it, 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 it shapes and forms us in ways we hardly know, and yet it becomes kind of second nature. And so for us, oftentimes, even in talking about bearing fruit earlier in obedience, um, oftentimes what it looks like to bear fruit, to obey, is to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus. And to move forward. Because oftentimes our reaction to a situation is sinful. Now, I want to talk real quickly before we um, move to the covenant and then we're done. The last thing I want to say is change is a process. And so as we commit to one another in the context of community toward a goal of change and growth, we have to recognize that change is a process and for some of us it's really slow. So if you look at Peter and Paul, for example, and I know that these are generalizations, but like you look at Paul, his life was changed on the road to Damascus and it seems like, for the most part, from what we have in the New Testament, his life, like he kept growing, he kept working through things. By the time he's writing a letter to Timothy, he's saying, essentially, I'm the chief of sinners. Right? But you look at Peter, by the time Paul is in the church in Galatia, or at least by the time he had gone to the church in Galatia, and he's writing the letter back to the church in Galatia, uh, Paul is essentially saying to Peter, hey, you haven't figured this gospel thing out. You don't understand that this means you don't give uh, extra credit to the legalists, the Judaizers, the people who um, essentially are dressing, kind of like putting on the show. And then not eating with the people who are like new Gentile converts or whoever that group was. Or you look at whole groups of people, churches. If you look in Acts chapter 17, it looks like the church at Berea just, it says they started examining the scriptures and essentially testing everything against the scriptures. And so everything that they heard or, or that was brought to them, they tested against the scriptures, which for them was the Old Testament interestingly enough. And yet you look at the church at Corinth and, and Paul's writing this letter essentially saying like, hey, you've got some serious work to do. Like a dude is marrying his stepmom. Like that's weird today. We've got lots of things to work out. You've got worship issues, lots of issues surrounding sex and marriage and singleness. Like we've got stuff to figure out. And so all of us 
who call ourselves Christians are on a, a journey of change, a process of change. And so part of that means that we're committing to a long and really hard process. And not just because the people around us are going to be really slow to change, but because most of us are slow at heart to change. So what we did is, is, is we um, wrote kind of like six commitments that we're making you don't have to do this. It feels a little cheesy. I get that. But for whatever reason, like, seeing something that says I'm committing to this and then giving that to somebody does something in our brains and our hearts that we oftentimes can't explain, uh, whether that's in a marriage or whether that's in membership at a church like Park Church or whatever the case may be. And so I would encourage you uh, to ask the question as you guys are leaving and wrapping up here tonight. What would it mean to commit myself to change with someone, with someone else, or a group of people? Whether that's your spouse, or really close friends, or a couple of friends, or a gospel community. What would it look like to commit to these six commitments? And on top of that, yeah, let me just read them real quick, and then we'll get out of here. I promise. First, we will commit to making growth and change our daily agenda. So recognizing we're sinners, we need change every single day. Second, we will live our lives in the context of biblical community because without a group of people, we cannot change. Third, we will encourage and ask for ways in which we can grow from those we're in community with. So we will encourage growth. We will ask for feedback. We will ask for people to look at our lives and tell us how we can grow. Fourth, we will create in our relationships a, a regular rhythm of repentance and faith. Fifth, we will commit to addressing the sin in our own hearts. So that's Matthew 7 stuff. Commitment number six, we will commit to walking with other people through their struggles. And the reason why I use commitment language is because oftentimes we use kind of try language as an easy way to let ourselves off the hook. And commitment is essentially saying, I am dedicated to faithfulness. I am dedicated to this thing. Um, I don't know if any of you in this room are divorced. My parents are divorced uh, multiple times each. I am a product of many divorces. And oftentimes, many divorces are just a product of people not saying, I'm committed. They say, I'll try. But in the gospel, Jesus says to us, I am committed to you into eternity. And so for us to commit to change means we're asking people into our lives to see what we see, see what we don't see, and grow with one another. So um, Jesus says in Revelation 21, essentially, I'm making all things new. I am committed to change with you. And in the new heaven and the new earth, when he restores all things, change is at the heart of that. Because they will all be we will all be new. We will be restored. We will be complete and fulfilled and perfect. And so let me pray, and then we'll get out of here. Jesus, we're really thankful for how you are changing uh, this church, how you are growing this body, how you are changing us personally and corporately. Jesus, we ask boldly that you would help us to commit to change. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Have a good night, guys.